am excited to be here. <laughs> I've done this a couple times and I love it when Sheree asks me because it does it gives me such a different view of the text um, when you're studying it for teaching. It's just like you just have to find so much in there and then it's it's always there. You know, so it's just a real blessing. If she ever asks you to teach, say yes. It's an undertaking. It's a big undertaking, but it's a good one. Um, so we are at Deuteronomy 8, and I just want to break it down. I'm going to read the entire thing. But before I read the entire thing, let's open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these ladies, for the Rooted Women's Bible Study, and just the chance that you've given us to come together to study your word, and to glorify you together. I pray that you would use me, Lord, well. I pray that you would guide my words and that the Holy Spirit would speak through me for everybody who's listening. In your name, amen. So we are at Deuteronomy 8. Let me make sure this is still, okay, looks like it's recording. Should be good. We are at Deuteronomy 8, and I'm going to read through the whole thing, like I said. So let's start at the beginning. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Excuse me. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gave you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Okay, so we find Israel here, and they are listening to Moses. They're poised to enter the promised land. They are at the cusp 
of their new lives. And they are probably very excited about this. They're probably, honestly, the book of Deuteronomy is him talking at the beginning of them entering the promised land. And I think at this point, how long have they been there? Probably like a couple of hours. And they're like, okay, Moses, can we get on with it a little bit? Like they want to hear what he's saying, but they so want to enter the land. This is kind of how I'm imagining them. And he is reiterating his covenant with them. And a similar method is also used in chapter 6. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses charges parents to continuously teach the word of God to their children. We see it again here. It's frequent repetition over and over again. Moses frequently instills the same cautions and precepts and rules over and over, with the same motives and arguments used every single time to enforce them, with the purpose that they may abide with this word, that the word might abide with them. Deuteronomy 6-7 says, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie and when you get up. And we see the same thing here. It's said over and over and over again that they need to remember. And this remembrance is going to be set. I'm going to say the word remember a million times tonight. And I said it a million this morning. Remember is the biggest theme of this chapter. And it's important to remember, to remember. <laughs> so let's go over a little bit of a breakdown of the chapter. In this chapter, we see Moses give first general exhortations to obedience and why obedience is so important. Second, we see a review and a brief record of what God has done for Israel, which this is a great argument for why their obedience is necessary and why it was sort of earned by God through their time in the wilderness. Even though we all know that God did not need to earn their obedience, they needed it very explicitly shown to them that their obedience was God's alone. And this, is a, this was a perfect way to show them. Three, a prospect of the land that they are going to go into. Moses is going to talk about the land that they're entering and all the goodness that's going to come to them. And then four, a necessary caution against the temptations that might come with being in a bit of a prosperous position. Definitely more of a prosperous position from where they're coming from. Also, there's going to be a fatal, or a warning, excuse me, a fair warning about the consequences, the fatal consequences that come from abandoning God or being estranged from him. We also see Moses use two double themes here, and these themes are over and over again throughout this chapter they're used. The first one is remember and forget, and the second one is going to be wilderness and promised land. And these are sort of held in dichotomic positions. They're against each other, they're opposites, and they're, they're held in contrast. And we're going to, every single time we look at them, we're looking at both at the same time. Moses is going to use the wilderness and promised land one most, and it's going to be... Um, to show the people which path they should be on and which path they should be avoiding. Obviously, we see remember and forget throughout the entire chapter as well. That's kind of the overarching theme, like I said. So this chapter starts in terms that we've heard before. Once again, the people are urged to obey the commands that have been set before them by the Lord. Verse 8 again, Be careful to obey all the commands I'm giving you today. Then you will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. First, they're told here to be careful to obey. There's a couple of things going on. First, they're being told to be careful, and they're being told to obey. So this, this is, it's a big thing right here. <laughs> um, obedience is going to give them something. One, it's going to bring them life. Two, it's going to help them increase. Three, they're going to enter the, enter the land that they've been waiting for. And then four, they're going to possess the land. Not only are they entering, they're possessing it. Before we move on to why this is so great, though, they're also being told, like I said, to, for, to be careful and to remember every single command. The Hebrew word here for obey that we see is shamar. And shamar means to keep, 
to guard and to observe. This is not something that Israel could do passively. This is something that had to be diligent. They had to be doing this constantly. It was going to take over their entire lives. And it should, and it should take over our lives too. When we look, when I look at the book of Leviticus or any of the laws in the Old Testament, I'm like, wow, I cannot do any of those. I would not be able to do that. That's a full-time job, a full-time and a half job, you know? And that's the thing. We're not supposed to be able to do all of these things. Praise the Lord for Christ. But they didn't have Christ here. They needed to be paying special attention to everything in the book. So if they wanted to enter the land, they were going to have to do these things. Their futures are riding on their commitment to fulfill the commands that were given to them. This might make us, whoopsie, I touched the microphone. Sorry, everybody. This makes us a little uncomfortable as modern believers who tend to think of works being additional, like grace is what saves us and then our works are on top of that. But we have to remember that our works are an outward sign of our obedience and faith. And this passage might help us kind of unpack that a little in our hearts and heads. It gives us a good perspective on how works are also involved and necessary. Oftentimes, we also like to just stick to the New Testament, where we have a new co uh, covenant and are covered through Christ. But God, our God, is the same God as the God of Israel. His wrath is real, and our submission is still required. We are to revere his majesty and respect and obey him. These things need to be done with a regard as God of, or to God as the Lord, excuse me. We have to have a holy fear of God, a reverence of his majesty, a submission to his authority, and we have to be fearful of his wrath. It's necessary. Why else should they follow God's rules? Because he said so? Yes. <laughs> but also, there are some practical advantages to why they should be following him. In Leviticus 13 and 14, there are different laws about how to handle skin diseases, and these have to be followed in regarding people with leprosy and other skin, skin problems. And there are very practical implications to following these laws. People are not going to spread leprosy or other skin diseases if you're following these laws correctly. There are many laws related to health and sanitation, and keeping them would literally keep them safe in a real and tangible way. But on top of this, there's also future implications. They're going to inherit the land. We might be tempted to think in sort of spiritual terms and say, the eternal kingdom, they're inheriting the land. But we actually mean the explicit land that they are about to go into. But it's true for us that we will inherit the land through God and <laughs> through Christ. But we're talking about a physical land here. Their submission to the Lord meant that he was going to fulfill the promise that they had been waiting for for all of these years. There's a deal going on. You uphold your side and you will get into the land. Now, the people have been waiting, like I said, for a long time. They're holding their breath, but there's still more that needs to be said. So Moses takes the next 19 verses to remind Israel why they need to remember and warns them that leaning on their own understanding and depending on their own strength is going to lead to their destruction. So verses 2 through 6, we're just going to chunk them all up. Verses 2 through 6 um, talk about remembering the wilderness having God's presence in the wilderness and the faithfulness to Israel while they were there. So verse 2, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Once again, they're told to remember. They're told to look back upon the wilderness through which God had now brought them. They've now come of age, and they were going to enter the land that was promised. They needed to be reminded here of the discipline that they'd been under, during their time in the wilderness and the method in which God had trained them up for himself. 
The desolation of the wilderness that they had entered, or their, that they were leaving, was in stark contrast to where they were heading. It's that theme again of wilderness and promised land. They were about to enter a land of richness and abundance and prosperity, but they had been in the wilderness for a particular purpose. The wilderness was sort of their school in which they had been for 40 years. They had been taught how to act, one might say, in the world. Now, this was the time to put their knowledge to the test out in the real world in the land that they were going to inherit. They were going to have real-time tests that they, they, they needed to know how to obey the Lord. Obviously, there had been tests as well in the past. The occurrences of these 40 years were, were very memorable to them. Excuse me. They, had, they were a time of discipline, and it showed people what was in their hearts. It became obvious over time in the wilderness that they were unable to keep his commandments on their own. They needed to remember for a few reasons why they had come, why they were here and where they had come from. The first one was for the mortification of their own pride. Through their time in the wilderness, they were humbled. And in the words of Matthew Henry, so that they might not be exalted above the measure with the abundance of miracles that were wrought in their favor. So there were miracles that had happened, but they could not, they could not claim them as their own. Through their time in the wilderness, Israel is taught that they can't do it on their own. They're unable to please God. And they're unable to even wander on their own. They don't even have a map. God was literally like helping them wander through the wilderness. They had the cloud by day, the fire by night. They could not even just, they were just walking in circles, but the Lord was guiding them the entire time. So we also see here that the humbling had to sort of happen. Their, their humiliation had to happen in the wilderness. There was no better time for that because when you're poor, you know you don't have any options. You know that your dependency only comes from God. When you're rich, you can choose to be distracted by any number of things. You can forget your dependency on God very easily when you have things. You can distract yourself with material possessions or activities. You can have excuses and you can claim your own success. Um, reasons you can't go to church, reasons you can't read your Bible, reasons you can't follow God. All of these things, they add up and they make it hard for you to be humble and hard for you to remember God. You can pay for your medicine. You can rely on your own supplies to feed your family or keep your house looking nice or in good shape. And these things, they, they give you a false sense of independence and they give you a false sense that you're in control. And this was going to be the problem for Israel as well. And we see that later it's, it's Moses' big warning for them. But when you're poor, you don't have that option. You know you're dependent. The le this lesson was taught to Israel when they weren't distracted by anything. It was them and the wilderness and God. Also here, they're taught that their perverseness and their sinful hearts are real and wicked and that there was no escaping that. They tried, but there wasn't. They and others, um, they and others, excuse me, might know that their hearts were wicked. God already knew this all along, but this was proving to them that they were wicked. There was no reason for God to choose Israel. And this, again, there's no reason for God to choose us. There's no reason that God chose me. But it's so easy for me to say, that there's, like, as a believer, I've been a believer my entire life. So at this point, I know how to walk like a Christian walks. So to be honest, I'm doing all right. But that's not why God chose me. That's not why God chose me. If you think about adoption, is there any reason that you would go into, like, an orphanage and choose one child versus another child? No child's diaper is clean. Absolutely nobody is doing a good job of making themselves look better to you. You adopt a child out of love. You're not adopting a child because they're 
proving themselves to you. They've done nothing to prove themselves to you. And in the same way, God has not, we haven't proven ourselves or recommended ourselves to God. They were tried in the desert, just as Adam and Eve were tried in the, in the garden, excuse me, with the tree, to show whether or not they were going to keep the commands. And it was proven to them that they were going to be unfaithful. They needed, or they needed to trust him to a thousandth generation and depend on his promises. And he shows them that through, his, through their time in the desert. Excuse me. Verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The people had to quickly realize during their time in the wilderness that they were completely helpless. They were fully reliant on the hand of God for literally everything, their food, their safety, their lives. We are too, but here it was very evident to them. And we should, we know that we're in the same position as them, but we're just surrounded by more stuff. We're kind of more in the position of the promised land. They needed to trust him daily. At the end of the day, their manna was going to go bad. They literally had to collect it every single day. They couldn't hoard it which would have kind of even more given them a sense of independence. Well, look at all the man I've gotten, you know? And like, who gave you the man in the first place? Every day they had to recollect this. And they needed him hour by hour, minute by minute. And later, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness in a very similar way, and he does it the right way. And we will see that later. But they were in a terrible place for 40 years, and I just want to really quickly look at the wilderness in which they were. So... It was not a good spot. It was uninhabitable. Immediately upon arrival in the wilderness, the whole of Israel looked around and they were like, we should have stayed there. We should have stayed in Egypt. And like, how ungrateful were they? They said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. They would have literally rather been in slavery than been relying on the Lord in the wilderness because the wilderness was no fun. They say, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They were just immediately blaming and immediately ungrateful. And they were not remembering where they had literally just come from. They had a lot of problems in the wilderness. They, there, were, there was all sorts of things. There was diseases and earthquakes and scorpions and snakes. And there was enemy tribes who wanted to kill them. All sorts of things. It was an un inhospitable and uninhabitable spot. And we see that later. Verse 15 says, God led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. And the Psalm, um, in Psalm 107, it also says that the wilderness was a wasteland. So this was not a good spot. They couldn't collect resources. They had nothing with them. They were just, it was them in the wilderness. It was terrible. But... Even when God helped them, they responded with bitterness. They had a bitter attitude. They could have entered the land originally if they had just listened to God in the first place, but because they disobeyed immediately and they rejected the report of the spies who came to tell them what was happening in Canaan, they had to wander. And this, their disobedience and their complaints showed a couple of things. First, it showed that they had internal dissent and they were not even getting along with each other and they weren't agreeing. But it also just showed that they had a lack of trust in God. Their wickedness, once again, was revealed and very evidently it was revealed to them. Through all of this, whoever survived in this wilderness only survived because of God and his mercy. They had literally nothing to help them. It was only God. Verse 4 says, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell 
in these 40 years. So they didn't even have new clothes. They had nothing. This emphasizes even more that God was taking care of them and providing for them. Know in your heart, then, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. That's verse 5. God's discipline sometimes involves correction, and sometimes it involves a bit of a severe correction that we don't necessarily want. But this isn't because he hates us. His correction is not prompted by hate, but by love. He loves his people. And this was Israel's, like I said earlier, was their time in their school of the desert. And in the same way, we might say this is their adolescence. And when you have a teenager, you need to teach them and you need to be stern with them. And you have to make sure that they're listening to you, even when they don't. And this was how God was teaching them how they were supposed to walk. This was how God was setting forth for them the road in which they were to walk. And sometimes this included hardship, but there was a good promised land in which they were going. And one way I'm sort of seeing this is we as believers are being sanctified through our lives and then we will be glorified. And in the desert, they were being sanctified. They were being taught how to walk. And entering in the promised land was sort of like their glorification, even though obviously they're still on the earth and they're not really glorified. But it's a good picture of how we and our lives as Christians are. Verse 6, observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. The result of this discipline that comes from God is that the people are now equipped with the strength and ability that they need for obedience. They still can't do it on their own, of course, and we can't either. But now they know that they need to live under the law of God and that doing so is going to be profitable for them. One commentator I read said that our, hand, our sin are the handles by which God takes a hold of us. Often people, sorry, this is still the quote, often people who are living away from an intimate relationship with God are not committing any huge sin that reveals their serious condition. Then they do commit a sin that is very unbecoming for a believer. It reveals the real state of their spiritual life, and then they turn to God for help. The subsequent course of action, including repentance and discipline, helps them return to becoming totally dependent on God. With dependence comes the grace that strengthens us for obedience. The people needed to go through the wilderness, and they needed to be chided, and they needed to be taught so that they understood fully their reliance on God and their need for obedience. So when we look at this, when I was reading this, I was thinking, but how, how do you obey? How do you obey? It's, we talk about obeying God, and it's rather simple, but it's also the entire life of a believer is learning this. And there are two ways. We walk in his ways, and we fear him. This is how you keep his commandments. And this is a trick question. Like, is this simple? That's a trick question. Yes and no. Because this is, like I said, this is the lifelong pursuit of a believer. You are learning how to walk in his ways. Now we're moving on. And in verse 7, we're out of the wilderness and God is, well, they're not out of the wilderness, but Moses is talking future. And he starts to tell people about the land in which they're going to enter. It's their inheritance. So verse 7, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams and pools of water with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. So first, who's bringing them into this good land? It says right there, the Lord your God. There is no other God responsible for Israel entering the promised land. They're not responsible. It is only the Lord your God. And then where are they going? This beautiful land. These verses offer an extended reflection of that beauty. And it's ultimately 
supposed to make us and to make Israel lead to praising God, which this is what we should be doing. When we see this and when we see where we came from and where we're going, we should ultimately praise the Lord. The description of the land here that we see is absolutely a glowing description. It's going to be filled with streams and pools and fountains. And this, just to begin, this is in stark contrast to where they're coming from in the wilderness. But it gets even better. It's a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. Verse 9, it is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills. So this land is pretty great. There's all sorts of things, and their, their mouths are probably watering as they're thinking about all of this because all they've had is manna. But to be honest, the younger generation probably doesn't even remember what anything tastes like besides manna. They, they only have what God had provided in the wilderness, which is only manna. But this is going to be a different land. There's going to be all sorts of things, all kinds of things, not just things that are necessary for their survival, but things that will help them grow and flourish and be happy and be healthy. These are going to be things for convenience and comfort. All sorts of things. There's fruit. There's wheat. There's barley. You can bake bread. You can do all sorts of things. There's grapes, which means there's wine. There's figs and pomegranates and oil and honey. This is going to be a fantastic place to live for them. They're going to feel satisfied. They're going to be full and healthy. But what has to happen after they've settled down and they've finished eating? It says in the next verse, when you have eaten and when you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. After they receive all of this goodness from the Lord, they need to be sure to praise the Lord for the good land he's given them. They are going to be surrounded by prosperity and satisfaction, but they only always need to remember who got them there and who it is that's providing this for them. When Moses is telling the people about the promised land, he stops here and he says, wow, this is going to be so great. He, it, he just stops himself. I almost feel himself stopping himself just to be like, this is so awesome, you guys. We are entering a really great place. And we need to do the same thing through all of this. When we look back and see how the Lord has provided for us, we need to praise him. This should be how we respond, just in the same way that Moses is responding here and how the people should be responding after they get into this land. The problem is that we often don't stop to meditate on what God has done for us. We don't preach the gospel to ourselves. Even those of us who have been believers for a very long time need to preach the gospel to ourselves often so we remember where we came from and where we're going. We are just as forgetful as Israel, and we need to do this the same way they were. So moving on to verses 11 through 16, here we're going to see Moses, and he's, he's giving them a fair warning of what will happen if they forget God in the promised land. And also the God that um, kept them in the wilderness, excuse me. We're going to be warned about the dangers of prosperity. So let's start out in verse 11. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you today. So there's two things here. One, do not forget the Lord and do not disobey his commands. They could forget the Lord through their disobedience. What's the trigger for this disobedience and their forgetfulness here? It's material prosperity. And this is also a huge trigger for us. We, we can so often, in our false sense of independence, forget the Lord. Verse 12 and 13. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. We see here that he uses the term when. 
when this is all going to happen, you need to remember these things. They need to remember who sustained them, even with all this extra stuff, and it's going to be very tempting for them. It could be easy for Israel to remember how hard they fought for their land and how hard they worked for it and how they had been in the wilderness, so they pretty much kind of deserved this, right? It's, we had gone through a lot of trials, so it's kind of, it's ours, right? Like, I, I think about my, in my own life, I had so much anxiety when I was younger, and it was really me that saved me from that, right? Like, I set up a good self-care regimen, you know, and I was pretty good at, like, focusing on my breathing when I started to get anxious. That was me, that was me right? No, it was not me. And it wasn't Israel that gave themselves all of these good things. They didn't deserve any of this. It was because of the Lord. That's why they had all of those things. And they forget. The land was a gift from God. Their military success was because God was with them. It wasn't because one of them did extra well that day. Their lives were only sustained because of God and the manna that he provided for them. They did not get their own, their own success. Prosperity can easily lead to pride. It can make us forget and it can make us think that any of our goodness and our success is because we did something well. Matthew Henry um, says, when the estate rises, the mind is apt to rise with it. And I just think that's really good. When you feel prosperous, you feel that sort of sense of false independence again. We have to strive then that even when things are going well for us, that we remember to stay whole, uh, humble excuse me, and remember who it was that got us there. Another Matthew Henry quote that I read was, humility is both the ease and the ornament of prosperity. Humility helps you handle prosperity well, but it's also beautiful. When you have humility and prosperity, it shows and it glorifies God. You're, you're showing the Lord there. You're showing that you know that none of that is from you. We have to never take the praise of our prosperity to ourselves. We can never attribute it to our own ingenuity or our own goodness. This can happen very easily. When we're prosperous, our hearts will feel glad. When we feel glad, it's easy for us to become prideful and arrogant because then we don't need God. We don't feel our need for God. You think about the difference between a first world country and a third world country. Who has more of a hunger for God? It's typically the third world country. It's typically the people who need him. They feel their desperate need for him. You get a country like Sweden who doesn't think they need God at all, and you have such high rates of atheism. There's, it's, it's so different. When you're so independent, you don't need God at all. I don't need God. We have everything we need in the United States. I don't need him. I do need him, but that's how it goes. It's so easy to take it, to take it that far. And when that happens, we can fall into dangerous territory. Even believers can fall into this. We fall into wickedness and once again that false sense of independence. And this can lead to outright rebellion of God. We don't need him. We admire ourselves and despise him. Let's keep going. Verses 14 through 16. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble and test you for your own good. Real quick, I don't know what version I was reading when I saw this, but there's an exclamation point after he says, he gave you water from the rock. And I'm imagining Moses, like almost not shouting it at everybody, but he's just like, you guys, this is amazing. He took a rock and he got us water in the desert. Praise the Lord. He can do anything. 
And they, he's just, once again, he's praising God here, is what I see. And they have to remember that everything that they had was given to them by God. I've said this a million times, I'm saying it again. God took particular care of their food, of their clothing, of their health. Nobody had ever had manna before. This was entirely new. It wasn't just something that people had heard of. They, they had never even heard of this stuff. Moses came down and was like, Aaron, we're going to have manna. And Aaron goes, great. What's, what's manna? And then I, I'm sure the women were like, I don't know what to do with that. There's, what do I do with manna? I've never made I've, manna, I don't, manna soup. I don't know. It's like the water from the rock and the manna for soup. I have no idea. But they've never had this before. He created their hunger, yes, but then he also fed them in their hunger. He, he created their need for, hum, like, from, ugh, excuse me, for humility, and then he humbled them. One commentary I also read said, God often brings his people low that he can have the honor of helping them. Hereby, he taught them that man does not live by bread alone. We see this later. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We are sustained only through God. The manna here also, for us, signifies Christ. We have the word of God made flesh, and he is ours, and that we can have eternal life through him. He is our manna, and it's manna that's renewed daily for us. His grace is new every single day for us. His mercies are new every morning, and this is manna that's going to last. Their manna, they had to collect it every single day, but this is eternal manna. Praise the Lord. So, Verses 17 through 20, excuse me, talks about, the. it's another warning of what happens if you're presumptuous. You have to remember God, the source of your strength. Don't forget God and follow other gods. Forgetfulness is going to ultimately lead to your demise. God directs them to remember and look back once again. He proved to Israel through their time in the wilderness that they could trust him when their means failed, and their means failed immediately. He taught them in the desert to live in dependence on him, not independence, in dependence. <laughs> Similarly, we also see this in Luke 22, yes. And the disciples are sent out. Jesus sends out the disciples, and they don't have anything with them. They don't have money. They don't have any clothing or sandals. But they're not lacking anything when they go out because they're being provided for, provided for through God. Even though Israel is traveling on foot through the desert, their feet did not swell. During these years, they had a strict discipline through the wilderness, but this wasn't without need. They needed to be here, and they needed to learn this lesson here. God is a tender and loving father to all of his children, but there are still times when discipline is necessary. And Israel needed this discipline. They were chastened so that they couldn't be condemned, so that they would not be condemned. We discipline our children as well. We don't discipline our children because we hate them. You don't discipline a child you hate. With a child you hate, you, you let them do whatever they want. We discipline our children because we love them. We want them to know the way in which they ought to walk. And in the same way, God disciplines his children because he's teaching us the way in which we are to walk. We are being disciplined now, and then we're going to be glorified. We're being sanctified, glorified later. In this same way, they were chastened and sanctified and entered their promised land. This is how God humbled them. It was for their own good. Even though it didn't feel good at the time, and they, I'm sure they were like, okay, when are we going to be done with this? I don't think God ever said, you're going to wander for 40 years. Did he ever say that? I don't remember if he said it explicitly. He did. He said 40 years. Okay, you're wandering for 40 years. I forgot about that. Sorry. <laughs> but still, they're wandering in circles, and they're just, they're just they, were, they needed this. 
And it was necessary, even though it didn't feel good at the time. It was not something that they should be forgetting. Because God disciplined them as a father, they needed to keep his commandments. Verse 17. He did all of this so that you could never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Moses contrasts where they're coming and where they're going. And this is the great difference. There's such a difference between the wilderness and the promised land in which they're going. Both of these things, both the wilderness and the promised land, though, did come from God's hand. And he provided them with everything in both locations. They don't, he doesn't deserve their thankfulness now that they're out of the desert. He, des- they deserve, he deserved it then, too. And this was just such a lesson to teach them that. Even in the hardship, they were kept well. God kept them there. Regardless of their circumstances, they were provided for. And regardless, regardless of their circumstances, they were required to obey him and honor him and glorify him. Those that, okay, here's another quote. Those that bear the inconveniences of an, of, excuse me, of an afflicted state with patience and submission are humbled by them and prove well under them. These are best prepared for better circumstances. God provided for them perfectly. Verse 18, remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful. In order to fulfill the covenant, he confirmed with your ancestors with an oath. With an oath, excuse me. Again, they're told to remember. Who gave you their power, or your power? Who gave you your very life and your sustenance as you walked for 40 years in the wilderness? He fulfills his covenant, and now you fill yours. Your obedience and submission to him belong to him as God. This is the perfect warning, and it's once again at the perfect time. Their lot was changing, and they were about to be very successful. But even with this warning, do they remember God? We will find out later. (laughs) But they could have been taught this lesson, or they could not have been taught this lesson after they had already been in the promised land. There would have been far too many distractions for them. And there are far too many distractions for us, but (laughs) here we are. It was them and God here, and they needed to rely fully on him. Moses moves on. Bad things are going to happen if they disobey. Verse 19. But I assure you of this, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, worshiping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed. The only way to keep possession of this good land was to keep obeying him. They needed to fulfill their duty. Israel had a duty to keep serving the Lord and obeying him. Moses told them flat out, if you're going to worship other gods, you are going to be destroyed. So often... Though, if you rebel against God, you're going to continue in rebellion, even though you have plenty of reason to stop, even though you have warning after warning after warning. And we're the same way. We are so forgetful. We could have horrible things happen to us, and we might suddenly wake up and, and say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to turn away from my bad things because I didn't like getting reprimanded. I didn't like getting... Um, I didn't like going through all of those things. You might have been on the brink of death and you were about to change your life forever. But the moment things start going well for you again, you are going to change back to your old ways because we are forgetful. We are so forgetful. We forget who has provided for us and sustained us. And we're just always going to go back to our old ways except through Christ. Praise the Lord. Verse 20. Just as the Lord has destroyed other nations in your path, you will also be destroyed if you refuse to obey the Lord your God. So this chapter ends on quite a different note than how it began. In the beginning, we're talking about where they're coming from and where they're going. And this is a very, very, very stern 
warning that they're getting here. But this is a very necessary warning that needs to happen. What is going to happen if they disobey and if they follow other gods? If they're presumptuous, if they lean on their own understanding, if they lean on their own goodness or success or ability, the worst kind of disaster will befall them. They'll become like the nations and they will be destroyed. When God is no longer at the forefront of our minds, it's easy to follow other gods and serve them and bow down to them. We see that in verse 19. So we do this today. Anything can become our gods. We become what we worship. We become what we behold. If we behold God and we keep his commandments and remember him and trust in Christ for our salvation, we will walk with him and we will be sanctified. But if we don't, if we become like we be, what we behold. So we will become like the world. We're going to forget our first loves and we're going to serve other gods. There's so many different things we can serve. There's so many things that can become our gods. And they're not necessarily bad because God give, gave us all of those things as good things, but we take the things and we make them God instead of worshiping the person who gave them to us. So we can worship our identities, our possessions, our money, our houses, sex, technology, all sorts of things. I tend to worship technology. I sit there on my phone and I forget that I ever need to pray or need God because I just have the entire world right in front of me. What do I need? But who gave us those things? God gave us our money. God gave us our phones. God made it so that people were smart enough to create phones. I have no idea how any of that works. All of those things are really good things. Our status can be good. How we look can be good. They can all glorify God. But when we take them and we create them into gods, it's going to destroy us. When Jesus was in the wilderness, he hungered for 40 days. He was tempted in the same way we were tempted. He had everything, and then he was taken out of it. And Satan came and tried to tempt him to turn rocks into his food, but he didn't do it. He even quoted the Old Testament. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We just read that. Satan asked him, to declare his own independence and God didn't do or and Jesus didn't do it. He knew his dependence was entirely on Christ and we need to learn from him and learn from Israel's mistake. He knew where his help lies. He knew where his hope lied. Our sustenance does not come from ourselves. It comes from God alone. We even today with the word of God itself, we take it so lightly. We forget to read the word of God for those of us who have been believers for long times we forget because it's just like it's just there we have it all of the time right so but then you think about once again third world believers who only have their bibles and or like christians in china who are so they're so hungry for the word of god and we take it for granted here and that it's we're we have such goodness and we're taking it for granted but we need to remember that this is our daily bread in the same way this is our manna Israel's allegiance belonged to God, and ours does too. If our thoughts stray from God, just like theirs strayed to the world, calamity will befall us, and we will be destroyed. God was very clear with them. If they were going to serve other gods, they would be destroyed. If we do as sinners do, we should expect to be treated as sinners are treated. If they were going to do what the nations did, they, need, they were going to be treated like the nations did. Israel was set apart. They were set apart for his glory, and they were not meant to be like those around them. In the same way, we today are set apart for God's righteousness and for his glory to be shown through us as believers. We're called to no longer act like the world. We were taken out of the world. We are redeemed. 
My hope, my, excuse me, my hope and prayer for us today and my exhortation for us is that we remember our God and we remember where we came from, our history as sinners saved from the wilderness and brought into the promised land, the same way Israel was called to remember. Our God saw us in our sin and our wickedness, and he provided the way out of it, our, the bread of heaven, the Son of God. We are sustained only through Christ. Let us remember. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your son. Thank you for sending him and sending um, the only way to salvation. I pray that we would remember that every single day. I pray that we would trust in you and lean not on our own goodness. May we not fall into independence, but may we remember our dependence on you. In your name, amen.